You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 190 by Rudolf Steiner, 12 lectures entitled Past and Future Impulses and Societal Events, translated by Paul King. This is Lecture 5, given in Dornach on the 29th of March, 1919. Apart from what is also of special importance to our contemporaries, what is of prime importance for us when currently speaking so much about the social question that moves our present times, is that the really ultimate practical solution to be considered regarding this question is inwardly connected with a spiritual scientific background. A person who is interested in spiritual science therefore has a special reason for looking at these questions from a spiritual scientific standpoint. Certainly it is of imperative importance today that an understanding should awaken in the widest circles for the impulses in the social movement. But these wide circles, on the other hand, have had little preparation for looking into the deeper background of the matter, for really taking the matter into account at its root causes. A certain understanding must also gradually ray out, precisely in the area of the social movement, from the individuals who are engaged in spiritual science. For this it is necessary that we acquaint ourselves with certain basic facts, without a knowledge of which a true understanding of the social question is not possible at all. For we should make no mistake that in people's life together in society, the unconscious and subconscious play an enormous role. What takes effect in societal life arises ultimately from what people think, what people feel, and what people will out of the impulses of their character. But in the age of consciousness-soul development, this will become more and more individual. With regard to their thinking, feeling, and will, people will become increasingly diverse. This is the task of the age of consciousness-soul development. Thus, in the way people behave together in society, a great deal will well up from the underground of their subconscious that will play into the social movement that began half a century ago, has reached a preliminary climax, and will continue to move on further and further, occupying people to a very great degree. For what is emerging today are initially chaotic demands. These chaotic demands will have to be replaced by increasingly clear ideas and better and better will impulses. The absence of these clear ideas and good will impulses is what has brought humanity to its present catastrophe and will extend the catastrophe in a way quite beyond measure. For we cannot say there is real good will in the widest circles regarding these questions. What we find is something like a giving way to what appears inevitable. People want to make small concessions here and there because they are scared there's no other way, that people might get a taste for it and the like. But what has to come about is real inner social understanding, 
this will have to find its way into people's hearts and minds, and will even have to become a part of our school education. Something like this can only be achieved if, out of a knowledge of human nature, out of a knowledge of the relationship between the sensory and the supersensory worlds, at least a number of people on the earth develop a deeper understanding of these questions than most people are able to develop today due to the superficiality of our current education. You saw yesterday how things stand with what plays a role in all human life as language. Now, consider, on the other hand, what role is played by languages in international relations over the earth. Consider how infinitely many nuances of feeling and will impulses of the most varied kind are dependent on language. And consider further how endless the unclarity is that reigns precisely with regard to such things among people of the present. Let's stay for a moment with the subject of language once more. As mentioned yesterday, we have three epochs of post-Atlantean development ahead of us. We are currently living in the fifth post-Atlantean epoch. This will be followed by the sixth and seventh. Up to now, as humanity on earth, we have developed a tendency, even in the disposition of language, as we saw yesterday, toward abstract thinking, toward non-pictorial thinking. What has to develop, however, before this fifth post-Atlantean epoch comes to an end is pictorial thinking, imagination. It is the special task of this fifth post-Atlantean epoch to develop the gift of imagination in earthly humanity. Please be careful not to confuse what I am talking about now with things in my book titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, How Is It Achieved? The book is talking about the individual. Its subject is the esoteric development of an individual person. What I am talking about now is the societal experience of a nation. Imagination is developed by the genius of a nation. One's own imagination in esoteric development must be sought by each person for themselves. But the folk genius develops the imagination from which must emerge the common intellectual and spiritual culture of the future. An imaginative, intellectual and spiritual culture must develop in the future. Today we have the culmination, as it were, of an abstract culture, a culture that everywhere works toward abstractions. A culture must evolve from this, which has image-rich thoughts. Our culture will need to be permeated by something people will not be inclined to express in abstract thoughts, but in images, such as that of our group statue, with the representative of humanity in the middle, with the Luciferic principle as one pole and the Aramonic principle as the other pole. And many and increasingly more people will have to say to themselves, quote, things to do with the real life of the creative mind cannot be expressed in abstract thoughts. We should not always be asking for abstract thoughts, but it is appropriate and finds its way more deeply into the human heart and mind to express oneself in images. A pictorial communal life is what has to emerge. In the sixth post-Atlantean epoch, a kind of inspiration of the folk genius is meant to develop, and out of this inspiration, ideas are to develop about the law 
which will be experienced as a kind of gift for earthly life. The system that arises in the state as a legislative body, as we recently discussed, is something that is in contrast to all creative cultural life. The system of the state is the opposite of all creativity. If earthly life is to be healthy and not ailing, what will gradually be established as the principles of law must be felt to be gifts from the spiritual world, coming down as inspiration to the folk genius in order to regulate earthly life. So that this life is regulated not merely by human subjectivity, but according to a great spiritual leadership. We can say that precisely due to this inspiration that must be experienced by the folk genius, Araman will be shackled. Otherwise, an Aramanic character would spread over the whole earth. In the final epoch, we'll primarily have to develop intuition. Only under the influence of this intuition can all economic life develop in the way we might imagine an economy in its ideal form. But the curious thing is that from now on it is not possible to separate things in the way I have done more or less abstractly on the board. Five, imagination, six, inspiration, seven, intuition. It is perfectly appropriate to talk about the ancient Indian epoch, the ancient Persian, the Egypto-Chaldean, and the Greco-Roman epochs as clearly demarcated periods, defined by an end and a beginning. A very specific mode of life developed in each of them. This can no longer be done for the future. There, the cultural epochs merge and mingle. This means that what is to emerge as intuitive life in the seventh epoch is already working into the fifth. Inspiration is also influencing the fifth and imagination that is not fully attained in the fifth can be retrieved in later epochs. Everything gets mixed together. We are not so strictly delimited from each other. It is necessary already now for humanity to work toward what ought to be attained in imaginative life, in inspirative life, and in intuitive life. But precisely what overlaps in time, as it were, must be kept outwardly separate by people. Intellectual and cultural life, which toward the future will have to develop imagination, must develop in cultural organizations that are emancipated from the state. The life of inspiration, which for the folk genius will primarily give it its ideas of law, must develop as the state, separate in itself. And as strange as it may seem, the intuitive life must develop in the economy. These branches must be kept apart externally, as you have heard from many perspectives already. Now, you will go a bit deeper into this division if you look at what I kept separate with regard to language. You see, language is seemingly something very unified. You consider language as something unified, and people feel language as something unified but it isn't. Language is one thing in relation to people's mental and emotional life, something quite different in relation to their life within the state and its laws, and something else again in relation to the economic system. Let's try a little to characterize something that is very difficult to characterize. In language, just think of poetry to start with. 
You have often heard me mention how much any person in a culture who is a poet, and who isn't a bit of a poet, has to thank language for. Language actually creates far more than one thinks. Language contains great, stupendous secrets. The genius of a language is something that is immensely creative. This is why it is so seldom that personal human creativity emerges in language. This is noticed only by someone who observes the development of nations with a certain inner dedication. In one incarnation, people are usually also only living in one epoch. They therefore have no good point of reference with which properly to judge what I mean here. We Germans, for example, speak today with certain nuances, but when we speak a unified, educated, ordinary German, we all speak differently from how people spoke in the 18th century. A person who follows attentively the literature up to the last third of the 18th century will certainly notice this. For the language we speak today is our common, educated, ordinary German, is a creation of Goethe's creativity and of those individuals who are associated with it, Lessing, Herder, even Wieland and Schiller to some extent. Prior to these minds, a large number of word formations simply did not exist. Open Adelung's Dictionary, which was published relatively late, and look for many words that today are quite common. You won't find them. The age that produced Goetheanism was linguistically highly creative, and we live in what was created in that way. You see there the creativity of individuals playing into the genius of the language as such. We can speak here of a creativity of the first order in poets. The epigons that came afterward created again merely out of the language. I have therefore often said that when one sees through these things, one is not particularly impressed by smoothness of language, by a prettily turned-out piece of poetry. What is really original and pulsates from the innermost of the soul is sometimes far less skilled than what is produced without much real poetical power, but with a certain finesse of language, with beautiful verses and the like. It is the same with the other arts. Such things need to be borne in mind. If we wish to gain an idea of how there is a life in language itself, in which we are embedded, by going deeply into language it becomes possible for an imaginative feeling and sensibility to arise. Certainly there is a great deal today that resists this learning of the imaginative element through language, because people with a certain justification, since languages in recent times have become international, learn many languages, or at least some languages to a certain degree. This learning of many languages has not yet brought the depths of the matter to the surface, but actually only the superficialities. The feeling element that mediates imagination has not yet been brought to the surface. A person who learns a number of languages today has to become a slave to dictionaries or a slave to the other handbooks of the language in question. Through this one learns to acquire the egregious untruth that when one looks up a word in a foreign dictionary, the word given means the same as the word in one's own language. Certainly, 
In terms of what I am about to discuss, it does mean the same, but it is not the same in terms of one's inner experience of it. Take the following as an example. In German, we say Kopf, head. In French, tête. In Italian, testa, and so on. What does this indicate? We say Kopf for the human head and for an animal head for the same reason that we say Kopf in Kohlkopf, a head of cabbage, because the thing is round, is ball-shaped. So someone who in German says Kopf is highlighting and stylizing its form. Tet and Testa emphasize, quote, a bearing witness, close quote, attesting, testifying. A completely different perspective is taken here to denote the same part of the human organism. In German, we say Fuss, foot. This is connected with Furt, ford, and with Furcha, furrow. We make when we pull ourselves along over the ground. This is the perspective by which we as Germans denote this part of the human organism. Pied, French for foot, a putting, denoting, quote, placing oneself on the ground, close quote. This is something quite different. Words, values arise from different perspectives. And this impulse to name the same things from different perspectives, hidden below the surface, imprints the subconscious of the national character which we usually do not consider at all. Now, bear in mind that you are not only dealing with human beings walking about on the earth, but with human beings as a whole. You study the whole relationship with the deceased. One who has died actually has no sense at all for this lexicographic speech, but has a most profound sense precisely for the imaginative element in it. If we now form our thoughts in such a way that the deceased receives the nuances of thought through the sounds of speech, they thus receive the imaginative form. When the word Kopf is spoken for them in German, they experience the roundness. When the same word is said for them in a Romance language, they experience the witnessing aspect. But the deceased do not experience with us the systematizing, the abstract referral to a particular part of the body. They experience in the most highly significant way what people in their current abstractness do not notice at all. So the human being as a soul has a very particular relationship to language. The relationship the soul has to language is actually far more inward than people's general, usual, everyday relationship to it. The soul really does feel inwardly the difference between whether one designates the foot as that which we stand on or that by which we make a ford, a furrow. The soul feels this. Externally, we only sense the connection of the word to the part of the body in question. In its sensibility to language, the soul is very similar to how it is when it is discarnate. And often the only thing we experience in language, in ordinary life, is like an external layer, merely spread out over the surface of language. And a true poet, for example, is someone who has a fine feeling, or a finer feeling than others, for this inner quality of language. And a person is only a real poet, for example, if they experience this imaginative quality of language, 
just as an artist is basically not someone who can paint or sculpt, but one who can live in color and form. People must acquire these things from now on and into the future. Without them, humanity will not be able to live on in a healthy way, because the cultural life would dry up. And if understanding for such things does not gain ground, people will only be able to live an animalistic life. And the curious thing is that when we follow children from birth, we see how they develop in their early years, how at first they babble and then gradually learn to speak. There is something in how they learn to speak that commingles with a legacy they bring with them from experiences they had in the spiritual world before they came down to birth. Something of this is mingled in with what the child is taught by its mother, nanny, father, or anyone else from whom the child learns to speak. A person who is able to observe more subtly in this area will get enormous surprises from children's acquisition of speech, and they will only be able to understand these surprises if they are able to presuppose the following. The child really brings with it, out of the spiritual world, a certain disposition, something that it intermingles with what stimulates it to speech from outside. In their inner sensibility for language, people experience something they bring with them from the spiritual world. But this is the only thing that is really spiritual in language. This is actually one element of language, this inner experience, that we are able to have because we bring certain impulses with us from the spiritual world. The other element is language merely as a means of communication. It comes into consideration as a means of communication for everything people have in common. We talk to one another so that one person knows what another wants to communicate to them. What matters here is not so much the inner structure of the language, but a certain convention. What matters is that we don't think when someone says table that they actually mean chair, and when they say chair they mean table. People on earth just need to come to agreement, as it were. And here an inner experience of language plays no part. This way of understanding language, where language is simply taken as a means of communication, is actually the only way it is experienced at present. For people today, language is not much more than a means of communicating with one another. Listening to the mysterious inner impulses of language in order to hear how the reigning power of the divine is revealed in this very language is a quality few have today. There are a few individuals in our time who have noticed that language itself has an inner life, but among those who have noticed this, the insight arises with a certain degree of coquetry, as in the poet Hoffmannsthal, or even in the brazen Karl Kraus in Vienna, who always maintains that he doesn't write his lines himself, but simply listens to what the language is wanting to write. The fact that he listens to what the language wants to write, but then does so in the way we do if we hear things from the spiritual world through our own emotions, askew and erroneously, just attests that his writing is so terribly brazen in a way the language itself would never inspire. But, as mentioned, individual people are aware of what language tells us that comes from other worlds, and that needs to be cultivated if people are to find their way to the imaginative life.
This will be an important moment, for it is something that connects people in society. A common language that brings a common imagination is something that will deliver social depth. Language as a means of communication can also do this at a pinch, but then it is externalized. As a mere means of communication, it is heavily dependent on convention. Hence also the externalization of soul life today, with language being used by people merely to jabber away to each other so that one person knows what the other is thinking. Indeed, you could object to this statement by saying that since so many people don't think, what we generally know when a communication is made is what the other person isn't thinking. Well, yes, but you know what I mean. Thus we have in language something that points particularly to the cultural life, to life in the intellectual and cultural organism. Something else in language is the merely communicative aspect, which is basically the only aspect taken into account today when people look in a dictionary. This points to the legal sphere. And because a word is one thing in one language and another in a different language, what is important is the external understanding. The undertones are not taken into account. Whether a thing is designated out of a particular impulse by one person and out of a different impulse by another. There is naturally an enormous difference in our soul life, whether with kopf we are to understand something rounded, in other words the form, just as in general the majority of noun formations in German are sculptural imaginations, or whether, as in the Romance languages, the majority of noun formations are derived from our being present, from our, quote, placing ourselves in the world, close quote, not from looking out, but from placing ourselves in the world. Great secrets are hidden here in language. As far as economic life goes, we could all be deaf and dumb and yet still lead an economic life. Animals lead one too. In the economic life, language is an alien element, a real alien. We use language in economic life because, after all, we are speaking people but we can engage in economic activity in a foreign country whose language we don't know. We can go shopping and do all sorts of things. In general, people don't need language directly for the sake of economic activity. Language is a complete foreigner here. The actual inner spiritual element in language is to be found in cultural life. The inner linguistic element is still there in the sphere of rights, albeit in externalized form. And in the economic sphere, everything that language signifies for the human being is completely lost. And yet the economic life, as I discussed earlier, is that which provides the soil and basis upon which can develop a preparation for our life after death. How we conduct ourselves in economic life, what feelings we have in economic life, whether we are people who gladly stand by others economically in brotherhood, or whether we are envious and greedily only want to have everything for ourselves. This is all connected with the basic constitution of our souls, and this is essentially the mute preparation for many impulses that have to develop in life after death. We bring a legacy with us from our life before birth, which, as I have described, expresses itself in that which the child bears with it into what it learns from its nanny or mother, 
and we carry a mute element with us from our life that germinates from the brotherhood that unfolds in economic life and develops important impulses in our life after death. It is a good thing that language is such a foreigner in economic life, that we could develop an economic life even if we were deaf and dumb, because it is precisely due to this that a subconscious soul life develops, which undergoes continuation once we have passed through the portal of death. If we were entirely limited to what we experience mentally in what can be uttered from one person and another, if we could not serve one another in an unspoken way, we would be able to carry little into the world through which we live after stepping through the portal of death. On the other hand, however, it is extraordinarily difficult to discuss the current urgent demands of the social movement because these current and pressing demands are in many respects economic concerns of humanity. But the language with which to discuss economic concerns doesn't exist. Our concepts are actually the least suited to discussing the social question. In Europe we might be able to discuss the social question in a completely different way if we had in our language what the Orientals have in theirs. It is just that the folk character there is decadent, but there are spiritual impulses in the language there which make it possible to indicate, as though with physical gestures, what needs to be discussed with regard to social life. Whereas we Europeans have the feeling that what we believe should always be stated in explicit words. But this is not possible. We need to acquire the feeling that what we are really doing when we speak is producing sound gestures that point to things. For with regard to sound gestures, people today still only have any real inwardness when it comes to interjections. They have it a little, as I discussed yesterday, for verbs, a hint still for adjectives, and none at all for nouns. Nouns are completely abstract, and this is why the dead have no understanding for these nouns. When we communicate with them and want to express things in language, they experience gaps. Hence, we have to make ourselves intelligible to the dead by changing what we want to say into real gestures, into real pictures, by not trying to think in words when dealing with the dead, but by trying to think better and better in pictures, in the way I described yesterday. Now, I have to keep saying that what can support us in this inner sensitivity for pictures is what we are trying to introduce as visible speech, namely in eurythmy. In eurythmy, the speech element is translated into a corresponding rhythmic movement, into gesture, and so on. But conversely, we must also learn to sense what we meet visibly to be a kind of language. We must learn that what we usually only look at speaks something to us. Morning says something different from evening, and midday says something different from night. A leaf sprinkled with dewdrops says something different from a dry leaf. We must learn once more to understand the speech of all nature. We must learn to penetrate further from an abstract gaze at nature to a concrete gaze. 
Our Christianity must be extended by being permeated, as I said yesterday, by a healthy paganism. Nature must really be something for us once more. This is the curious thing. In our development hitherto in the fifth post-Atlantean epoch, we have become more and more indifferent toward nature. Certainly people still have some feeling for nature. They enjoy going out into nature. They can also be sensible of nature artistically and aesthetically, but they cannot rise to an experience of the inward and living essence of nature in such a way that nature speaks to them as one person speaks to another. But this is what is needed if intuition is really to enter human life once more. If humanity is to evolve healthily, it must develop before the three epochs we have been speaking about have run their course, a kind of personal relationship with all the particulars by which we are connected with nature. Today we can say abstractly that if you consume sugar, you strengthen your sense of individuality, egoitate. If you consume little sugar, you weaken this sense. Tea is the drink of diplomats. It drives thoughts apart and is a means of becoming superficial. Coffee is the drink of journalists. It puts one thought next to the other in abstract logic. This is why journalists like to frequent coffee houses and diplomats go to teas and so on. We can say this today by deducing it abstractly from the nature of things. But only later will people come to develop a healthy relationship to everything connecting them with all of nature just as animals have instinctively today. Animals know very well what they are eating. Originally, under more naive conditions, people also knew what they were eating, but they have forgotten it, have unlearned it. They need to acquire it once more. There are curious people today, as I have often mentioned, who sit at the table with a pair of scales in front of them and weigh out how much meat and other things they should eat because this has all been worked out by nutritional chemists. Under this abstract relationship to the world that the human being has developed, all coming into connection with the world in a healthy way is lost. Excuse me if I put it like this, but we need to experience again the spirit of sugar, the spirit of tea, the spirit of coffee, of salt, the spirit of all the other things with which we are related simply through our organism. We need to learn to sense and experience this once more. People sense this area today in the utmost abstract form. They feel something when they say, quote, I am a mystic, I am a theosophist, close quote. What does this mean? A person who feels the divine inwardly with their eye, capital, who feels the macrocosm and microcosm, the divine human being within us becomes perceptible, it lives as we say. Naturally, these are the very grayest and most nebulous abstractions. But people today do not believe it is possible in any way to get beyond these abstractions. A concrete participatory experience with the whole world is something people today do not seek. Chatter, without thought, about experiencing God within oneself seems for people today to be something of great moment. If one tells them they should experience the god of sugar or of coffee or tea, well, people think this is very strange. And yet this is the real experiencing 
of the external world, because human experience of the outer world is coarse and material, if there is no possibility for this material experience to have a spiritual aspect behind it. In the second post-Atlantean period, in the ancient Persian culture, for example, the situation was still such that when anyone ate something, they felt how much light they were taking into themselves. The sun prepares the food, gives it its light, and when one eats it, one also eats the light in the food. Every individual felt how much light they were receiving. This was experienced in ancient times and must return at a higher level of consciousness. These are naturally all long-term ideals, but they are not as far as one might think from what is most necessary for people today. For when we look at things like this, we come closer in an increasingly concrete and real way to what people have in common. And getting closer to what people have in common is something we are in great need of. And precisely in this area of veneration for nature, in the area of seeing into nature, there will emerge more and more something that recognizes the economic life, even this mute economic life that seems so materialistic to us today as part of the divine world order. And then we will understand that in order to be healthy, the social organism must be divided into three branches. It must have an intellectual and cultural sector because we carry into this principally what we bring with us from our life before birth. It must have an economic sector because it is here that there must mutely develop what we bear with us through the portal of death and what becomes impulses after death. And separate from these other two, it must have the legislative sector because it is primarily in this area that things most applicable to earthly life are reflected. We can show it diagrammatically and there's a picture. If this represents earthly life, then what we bring with us from our pre-birth existence comes into this earthly life as though overlighting it, and in turn we develop in this life what we then carry out of it. What I have drawn here as a red line contains from the beginning what is spiritual. It enters primarily through speech or similar things. In what I have drawn here in blue, the spiritual aspect, through the impulses we have absorbed in economic life, raise out after death. This middle section that I have drawn in white is shown on from the side, as it were, by the spiritual yellow. The sphere of law as such is completely earthly, but is shown on sideways, as it were, so that inspiration, which will have to subdue Araman, can find expression in the legal system. We need to advance to ideas about law that are taken from the life of thought, that are actually initiation concepts. But how can things such as those I have spoken about today be readily intelligible to wider circles of people in modern times? They cannot be, for that would require spiritual scientific ideas to permeate our entire modern education and culture. Without them there is no going into the future. This is why the health of societal life is intimately connected with the spread of a real understanding for spirit knowledge. Certainly, on the other hand, people who have goodwill and are open to social ideas will gradually also feel the urge to be open to spiritual things. 
The people who will strive most against the spiritual are those who want to hang on rigidly to the things I spoke about yesterday, the things to which the children, who for a number of years have been descending from the spiritual world into this earthly one, are averse. It is indeed sometimes lamentable to see how few people are inclined to really learn from events, how people still appear to have the same ideas they had before it became so evident that what lives in these ideas has driven humanity into the terrible catastrophe of our time. A certain feeling of responsibility should take hold of humanity, and a realization that the needs of the times must really be viewed for once from a broader perspective. Just consider, this has to be said of very many people today, how egotistically we sit in ourselves, and how many reasons we might have today to look further than our own selves and at the great questions of humanity. They are so overwhelmingly huge, these questions of humanity today, that if one is a reasonable person, one would barely find the time to look at one's own narrow personal destiny if this most narrow personal destiny cannot be made fruitful for the great questions of the time that lie in the lap of this epoch's development for humanity. One might wish that people would notice the strong discrepancy between the essence-less quality that is present-day personal destiny and the essential quality that is emerging today in the great overwhelming questions of humanity. And in reality, it is not possible to understand spiritual science, or at least not at the present time, if we don't approach these great human questions with understanding and openness. Nevertheless, there are things beginning to develop even now. But it is precisely those professing, in a certain sense, to belong to the movement for spirit knowledge who should strive for a particularly energetic understanding of what is playing out in the wider context of the social movement of the present time, and which, as you can see from what has been indicated today, has wider horizons than one usually thinks. On the basis of yesterday's and today's preparation, we will reach a conclusion tomorrow. The end of Lecture 5